Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? This is going to startle some people because it's like the most popular flavor, but everybody hates it and is no, like... No, no, you're not going to say what I think you're going to say, are you? It's vanilla. Good Lord. It is just a classic. It's a classic. It goes on everything. You can have it alone. You can have it on pie. You can have it on whatever you want. Imagine a mint chip on an apple crumble. That is just nasty. I'm Archie Mann, by the way. And this is Noor Azriye. And the reason we're talking about ice cream today is because we're trying to understand one of the most powerful, most secretive cartels in this country. This cartel oversees a uniquely Canadian system that critics claim is one of the best examples of our country's lack of competition. And we're going to start off at a little ice cream shop in Ottawa that accidentally found itself in their crosshairs. Noor will take it from here. In early September, I found myself at the door of one of Ottawa's most popular ice cream shops. It was a little early in the day for ice cream, but I was planning on meeting with Marlene Haley, the owner of the Mary Dairy. I was there to talk to Marlene about a strange encounter she'd had a few months prior. But before me and Marlene got into that, she took me on a tour around her business. This is our scoop shop. And so people come here for scoops, vegan and dairy. And they can buy pints from this freezer right here. And so this is our pint selection. And as you can see, I had an idea back in 2010 to start an ice cream truck in the city and sell frozen custard. So I went out and bought a truck in Pennsylvania, equipped it with the right machinery to make the ice cream. For five years, we only had a truck and we sold frozen custard around the city at events and parties and on the streets. And then back in 2017, this building came up for sale and I had been renting a commercial kitchen. And we thought, wouldn't this be a great place to make our ice cream and also have an ice cream shop? A lot of freezers. The humming sound is all the... Marlene opened her doors in a cute little neighborhood called Hentenburg. The neighborhood is home to an array of local shops. We're talking bookstores, craft stores, and even a cafe I used to work at. And since 2017, the Mary Dairy was there too. It's a real gathering place for not only people in the community, but people come from across the city. And it's very social. People across the city loved Marlene's ice cream. And as demand grew and pandemic measures grew stricter, Marlene shifted gears to wholesale. So wholesaling was never in the big picture when I set out to make ice cream. It started in 2019. I didn't know it at the time. I was approached by two businesses if I would sell them ice cream because the person who had been wholesaling to them was no longer doing it. So they asked me and I said, sure. And that's just what Marlene did. At first, she was wholesaling to two clients. But the harder the pandemic hit, more and more businesses started asking Marlene for help to stock up their shelves. That's what kept us going because we stopped scooping at least three times when things were shut down. But we always had our pint sales. People loved it. And our newsletter going out each week, people would look to see, oh, what new flavors are they offering? We were always with the seasons and with fruit and with different things, Christmas, holidays. 
until we got shut down just this summer. Marlene remembers the day her business was shut down. It was a regular day like today. I think it was even a garbage day. You know, we're out cleaning the yard. I'm in the back. We hadn't opened yet because we opened at noon. And the officer who wears an outfit that looks much like park ministry, you know, brown pants, khaki shirt with a badge, she came to the backyard and approached me. And I was just cleaning up the yard. And she said, are you the owner? I said, yes. And she said, oh, I'm from Omafra. Omafra, Ontario's Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. What do they have to do with a small local Ottawa ice cream shop? I thought it was a friendly visit. Didn't even know why she was there. And then it was like a slow process where I was figuring out that, oh, I'm in trouble. The Omafra agent didn't come empty-handed. She showed up with paperwork, a compliance inspection report, and a dairy plant declaration. Marlene says it was like being visited by the milk police. She asked me the question, are you wholesaling? And I was excited to tell her, yes, we do wholesale. Would you like to see our walk-in freezer? And she said, no, I don't need to see anything. I've already been to one shop around the block butcher shop. I saw that your product is on the shelves, but I wanted to verify with you that you are indeed wholesaling. And we have a complaint. The form had a few options under the reason for inspection. Routine inspection, something that Marlene says hasn't happened in her five years of operation. Another reason was complaint, ministry-initiated, or a follow-up. And Marlene's was a complaint. And I said, oh, who complained? And her answer was, I'm not given that information. I'm told to come and visit you because you are wholesaling. And under the Milk Act, Ontario Regulation 761, you are not allowed to wholesale. Because it was a long weekend approaching. And I said, oh, well, we just delivered wholesale to all of these people, all of these shops. You've given me this notice now, so we'll stop. I didn't realize it was wrong, but we'll stop. But they've already got our ice cream. Can they sell it? No, you need to go and take it off the shelves or you will be fined. We're talking about a $2,000 fine every day until her ice cream is off the shelves. So Marlene went door to door, taking her own products off the shelves of other businesses and brought them back to her own store and sold them there. It took us two days to round up all the pints, contact all of our wholesale clients, bring them back to our shop. We put out a notice to everybody saying, we've got a lot of ice cream. We actually put them into brown paper bags and called them mystery pints, and we sold them all. Marlene signed the document while the officer was still there, but quickly changed her mind and crossed it out. She wasn't ready to sign it. I think most businesses, when they get a visit like this, they just say, I've been told I can't do this. I was in the wrong, and they just stop. From then on, we just decided to come up with a plan, and I think we have a good plan. Marlene was ready to put up a fight, but who and what exactly was she up against? What was it about the wholesale pints that sent the milk police to her door? And why are we punishing a small ice cream shop? I went home after meeting Marlene and her team, and I started to do some reading. And there was a lot to uncover. So, Noor, what did you find out? So let's start at Regulation 761 that Marlene mentioned. And basically, this regulation is housed in the Ontario Milk Act that was passed in 1965. It's basically the rulebook for large distributors. But that's not really what Marlene is. 
Are these regulations supposed to make sure that all these dairy products are safe? Is that what's going on here? Yes. Essentially, they're a health and safety protocol. It's basically the milk laws. So I'm getting the sense from what you're saying that even though on paper this is supposed to be a health and safety issue, it's more about impeding small new operations like Marlene's. Honestly, it seems like all the regulations set up are aimed at making things really difficult for small businesses. And the only way to really get around these regulations is to become a licensed dairy plant. And the only way to get licensing is by paying $150. But the problem is that to retrofit the production facilities, like her store, it would mean thousands and thousands of dollars. And that's not really doable for a lot of small businesses. What do you think the connection is between Mary Dairy and what's been happening to Marlene and the issues we've been digging into in this season? Monopolies, corporate concentration, all of that stuff. Politicians don't really want to touch the milk laws and they don't want to change the laws out of fear. And you know what? Marlene was right to be afraid. She had just brushed up against one of the most powerful groups in the country. It's a shadowy group that some say are the true power behind our elected officials. They wield enormous influence that they use to either benefit their friends or to crush their enemies. No, it's not the bankers. It's not big oil. It's something far, far more frightening. More after the break. Working as a political journalist in Ottawa means you get invites to lobbying events. Lots of them. There were just constant receptions and galas and meet and greets and drinking fests. So they would rent out um, hotel ballrooms and convention centers and bars and restaurants, and they kind of just opened the doors. My name is Justin Ling. I am a freelance investigative journalist. There's a few that stand out to Justin. You know, the video game lobby had a really fun one. I once had groceries in my fridge only because I went to the Grocers Association annual piss-up. But there's one bash that was bigger and better than all of the rest. There was no event more prestigious and exciting and looked forward to than the Dairy Lobby's annual meet and greets and free cheese fest. They would frequently rent out the Chateau Laurier Ballroom, which is a huge ornate room. I mean, it's welcomed the monarchy on several occasions. You know, it, it has been the site of many a grand election night party in the past. It is this opulent room. It's massive. It can fit. I, I think. I think it's upwards of thousands of people, and they. They go all out. You walk in and there's food stations on every corner of the room serving all sorts of delicious Canadian cheeses. There's a milk bar. There's uh, flashy presentations. There's hired staff kind of filtering throughout the room looking to tell you about the virtues of Canadian milk, cheese and eggs. It is a really high end affair. A high end affair full of some pretty bizarre scenes. I have this vivid memory of one member of parliament sort of floating through the room with a glass of beer in one hand and a glass of milk in the other. You actually would just see grown men 10 o'clock in the evening just pounding glasses of milk to show all of their 
you know, their dairy supporters, how vested in the cause they were. I mean, it's good milk. I'm not saying it's just quality, top shelf milk. Sure, it sounds cheesy, but it's also utterly extravagant. This pasteurized party, this butter bash, this moo juice mixer, this fete de la feta, it's the physical manifestation of the power that the dairy lobby exercises in our politics. And there's good reason for dairy farmers to be interested in federal politics. It all comes down to the unique system that Canada has in place for how dairy is regulated. And if you're a close watcher of Canadian politics, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Supply management. Here's what I've always found fascinating about supply management. There's no other topic in the country that unites columnists and journalists more than their opposition to this system. And it doesn't matter what paper they work for, whether they're left-leaning or right-wing, the media seems to despise supply management across the board. And yet, on politics, all the parties are united. I cannot point you to another policy point where there is so little daylight between not just the liberals and conservatives, but between literally every single party in parliament. So to help explain the Byzantine and confusing system that is supply management, I'm going to bring Noor back in. So Noor, not a lot of people know this, but you have a dream, right? I do have a dream. Archie, days I sit by and I dream of myself in plaid with hay surrounding me and a bunch of smelly old cows. So you're saying you want to be a dairy farmer? Correct. Four years of journalism down the drain. Farming is my passion. All right, Noor. So I'm here to help you embark on this journey. So what do you need to know? I need to know what the hell I need to even get started. Well, what do you think? Where do you think you'd start? I'm going to buy myself some plaid and get some cows. So I got some bad news for you, Noor. Just because you go out and buy some cows doesn't mean that you get to be a dairy farmer. You could have some cows, but you wouldn't be able to sell that milk. You need to buy what's called quota. Do you know what quota is? I have to pay something? Basically, you have to buy the right to sell a certain amount of milk. Here's how it works. There's only a certain amount of milk that's allowed to be sold everywhere throughout the country in a year. And the government decides how much that is. And the reason is so that they can keep prices up. I mean, you want to be a well-paid dairy farmer, don't you? Yeah, of course. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. That quota, it can be pretty expensive. Let's say you have... 65 cows in order to start a farm. That's a bit ambitious. Okay, but, you know, that's that's probably how much you need. You'd need to buy about 65 kilograms of quota, a kilogram per cow. In Ontario, that'll cost you around $24,000 per kilogram. So that's a little over $1.5 million in total. Now, Noor, do you think you could pull that off? Uh, Unfortunately, not. And even if you did buy up all that quota, you can't just go sell milk to your local grocery store. You have to sell it to the provincial marketing agency at a price that's set by the government. So, Noor, knowing all this, you still think you can make it as a dairy farmer? It's over. Journalism it is, I guess. So what's the purpose of this cumbersome, expensive system? Almost everything I've ever read about supply management paints it as a pretty bad deal for everyday Canadians. 
There is an enormous cost to consumers from this system. I mean, there's been estimates that put the actual dollars and cents at about 60 cents more per liter of milk, that's to say nothing of cheese and yogurt and, and, and eggs and some poultry. There is an enormous cost to the consumer, and especially at a time with, of high inflation. I mean, you have those differences, you make a, a fairly substantial difference in the monthly budget of, of a ton of people. You can look at other jurisdictions that don't have this kind of supply management, and you see that the price of dairy, the price of cheese is substantially lower. What's more, there's also more selection, there's better selection. So then why do we keep supply management around? I decided to put that question to one of the most vocal proponents of the system. My name is Bruce Muirhead. I'm a professor in the Department of History at the University of Waterloo, and I've spent the past 15 years or so working on supply management as a great system that satisfied Canadians' demands and serves Canadians very, very well in terms of the products that it provides at a reasonable cost. Supply management was created to solve a problem that was bedeviling farmers in the 1960s, overproduction. When farmers produced too much, Governments were forced to subsidize them to um, allow farmers to have a minimum income. But the government wanted to get out of the subsidy business, so they decided to restrict supply instead. And the way that Bruce thinks about supply management is as a necessary counter to a free market approach, which he doesn't believe has served us well in other parts of the economy. It flies in the face of what's perceived as common wisdom now of neoliberalism, which is the most bankrupt ideology I've ever come across and benefits one sector only, which is the corporate sector, the big corporate sector, of course, at the expense of most of the rest of us. He notes that in the U.S., dairy farmers receive enormous amounts of money directly from the government, something that doesn't happen in Canada. The Americans subsidize dairy producers. So in a sense, American consumers would pay twice for dairy products. They pay once through their taxes, of course, through the subsidization of, of dairy farmers. But again, they pay at the store then when they go to buy dairy products. And most of that money goes to enormous agribusinesses that are monopolizing dairy production in the U.S. The big producers get the lion's share of the money. You know, and we're, when we're talking big producers, we're talking about 25,000 milking cow herds in California or in other parts of um, the American West where the dairy industry is now located. So these are herds that are milked, you know, 24-7, 365 days of the year. And those farmers make a killing off of government subsidies. Basically, if you're milking 60 cows or 100 cows in the U.S., chances are you're not going to make it. And according to Bruce, that difference between Canada and the U.S. has profound consequences for everything from rural development to animal cruelty. And if we want rural sustainability, if you want a countryside that actually looks more like a countryside with farms and barns and that kind of thing, and not huge milking sheds of 20,000 cows, they're not farms at all, but they're industries. They're sort of factories where cows are just mined and the milk is pumped out. They produce hundreds of thousands of gallons in the, in the case of the U.S. a day. And um, I would say that the cows are not particularly well treated as well. You can imagine with 20,000 cows, it's a, it's a pretty cutthroat operation. And Bruce mentioned another justification for supply management that I think is really important to highlight. We would have tsunamis of American milk coming across the border, of course, if we didn't have supply management. So what would happen if we get rid of supply management in dairy and eggs, is that our countryside would change irrevocably. 
because all of those dairy farms would simply go out of business overnight. There is no way we can compete with that kind of American production. That fear of enormous American enterprises is something that's going to come up a lot in this season. Industry after industry uses that fear to argue that corporate concentration in Canada is actually a good thing. But I do have to tell you that I came into my conversation with Bruce pretty skeptical about supply management, but I found his argument persuasive overall. In this telling of the story, supply management isn't so much a symptom of Canada's problem with corporate concentration, but it's an attempt to fight against big companies that would otherwise monopolize the dairy sector. And it's a way for smaller dairy farmers to be able to compete. And if you talk to the dairy lobby, they'll tell you that it's these kinds of arguments that win over politicians of all stripes. Here's Justin Ling again. Their message is frankly pretty compelling. I mean, they argue this system, the system of supply management, which we have built, works really well. You know, we actually have a number of small and independent dairy producers and cheese producers across the country. Uh, we have an industry that has been sure, uh, you know, hit by economic downturns and by changes in the market, but has proved much more resilient uh, than other agricultural industries. But that doesn't mean that supply management is working as it's intended. There are a lot of problems. For one, it's very difficult for someone new to start a dairy farm because of how expensive it is to buy quota, which seems especially unfair when you realize that all that quota was initially given out for free in the 1970s. And even for farmers who do have quota, many of them are selling their dairy farms, which is slowly leading to more concentration. And then there's the fact that there is a big problem with a lack of competition when it comes to the companies that turn that raw milk into pasteurized milk, butter, cheese, and all of that other good stuff. Three companies, Saputo, Lactalus, and Agropore, dominate the market. And that last one is a collective of dairy farmers, but the trend is still worrying. And of course, milk prices keep going higher, hurting everyday people. So why don't we reform the system, focus on the good parts, and try to make it better? Well, that's where the dairy lobby comes in. They are powerful, secretive, and not afraid to punish politicians who think that they might threaten the current system of supply management. The dairy lobby does have a cudgel in its war chest if you decide to come out against them. And we've seen some politicians fall victim to this. As soon as you start talking about whether it's something kind of rather innocuous, like new trade deals, which could uh, create small openings for the dairy sector, or whether it's a full-scale dismantling of the supply management system, you start to hear uh, threats that range from, we're not going to tell our members to come out and vote for you. We're going to organize the the members of, of ours in your riding to make sure that you do not get reelected if you do this. And it goes all the way up to them previewing, and in some cases, launching attack ads that are specifically targeted parties or politicians that don't toe the line. And Justin says that he does understand why the dairy lobby acts this way. They're supposed to go advocate for their members and advocate for policies that benefit their members. The trouble is, no one else has this kind of money. What it basically means is that you have the dairy lobby just sort of towering and casting a shadow over everybody else who, who seeks to change the system. You don't want to be the guy who steps out onto the, you know, the Parmesan ledge, as it were. And I can't believe I just invented that. And I feel very ashamed of it. But you don't want to be the guy who stands on the Parmesan ledge. Because if you do, they're going to break it off and you're going to fall to your death. Uh, so 
it, it really is going to require some more kind of broad based effort to stand up and say, maybe we don't have to dismantle it. Maybe we don't have to fully pull apart the system, but let's at least have a conversation about it because we've not even had a conversation about this in years. So what does this mean for people like Marlene, the owner of Mary Dairy, who you heard from at the top of the episode? All she wanted was to be able to sell her ice cream wholesale, but she came up against a rigid system that's protected by a powerful political lobby. Here's Noor again. When I spoke with Marlene last, she told me she had a plan to fight back. So a few weeks later, I met up with her at an Ottawa bookstore where the Mary Dairy had a truck set up to sell ice cream. These are fun days when we get the trucks out because, well, for one, it's almost the end of the season. When we stopped being able to wholesale, we decided that we would sell pints in the trucks whenever possible because we're allowed to. And that's exactly what Marlene and her team did. They packed up their most popular flavors in the ice cream truck and called it a pint tour. And the trucks travel to neighborhoods. Today, the big truck is out at a greenhouse near Navin, and this little scoop truck is here in the Glebe today. Her proposal makes possible amendments to the current Milk Act and offers solutions to allow small businesses to sell ice cream in local stores without requiring crippling financial investments. What Marlene wants people to understand is that not everyone can afford to pay to be a dairy plant, but everyone deserves the chance to make it on local shelves and compete in the market. We have a petition and we have it at the truck and we have it in the shop and we have over 3,000 signatures. Almost every person who comes in our shop signs it saying like, we want to have local wholesale and can you help us out? People are on board like to help us get the message out, but not everybody knows really how things can change. If we've learned anything, it's that something's got to give. Maybe Marlene is asking the right questions. Why is it that we haven't had a conversation about dairy in so many years? For some people who think, well, well, why? I can get my ice cream in the grocery store. Why do you want to wholesale? There's other brands. Um, I just always go back to the craft beer movement, even if you don't drink beer. Just people are aware that a long time ago it was a big monopoly. There were only a couple brands of beer in the stores. And now when you travel, you can get local pubs with local brews. And that makes Ontario a fun tourist destination for people. She's got a lot to go up against. But you know what? I'm rooting for her. I want that salted caramel on shelves, even though vanilla still is my favorite. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Justin Ling, Ashley Stewart in Global News, John Paul Tasker in CBC News, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at candleland.com. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Cornish, and Noor Azria, with additional reporting by Noor Azria. Our production coordinator is Andre Pruhl, and our music is by Nathan Burley. 
you can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on CanadaLand merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.